Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. We are so glad that you are here. Karen, thank you so much for your words this morning. And I wasn't here last week, but I heard Kim on the video, and that was beautiful as well. I am grateful for all the folks who are willing to share and share from their hearts and prepare. And I know that my faith is deepened and, uh, and my, my walk is furthered because of your willingness to be a mouthpiece. And so I'm, I'm grateful that you, you both did that for us. So when you are thirsty, to what do you turn to wet your whistle? There's all kinds of things that we can look to, and we can go the simple route and just have water. That is easy, one of the most plentiful resources on the earth. But what kind? Do you go tap or bottled? Filtered or just plain faucet? Or when you're in Europe, you know what they ask? Sparkling or stilled. I also heard ice, another form of water. Yeah, in fact, they don't really ask. They just assume you don't want ice unless you're American. And then we want as much ice as we can get. If you go to the water aisle in the grocery store, you will see a massive amount of water, but then you'll also see ways that we trick up water in all kinds of, all kinds of ways. So you can have water with just a, a hint of fruit. Or you can get water with the essence of fruit. Or you can get water that has fruit coming at you at just sort of this epiphany, an idea. It's like, aha, is there, is there fruit in this drink? Maybe there's a little bit of fruit. Or you could just go with fruit juice. But there's all kinds. There's all kinds of mixtures, and there's fruit juice that's 100% fruit juice, all the way back down to just the suggestion of fruit, the mere thought or idea of fruit. So maybe you'll go back to your childhood and you'll go with milk, but what kind of milk? Do you go whole or half or 2% or 1%? Do you go skim? Do you go soy or almond or oat or buttered milk? Or those of you who are old enough to remember powdered milk and you're still trying to forget the memory of powdered milk? Or perhaps you go with tea, but what kind? Do you go iced tea or hot tea? If you go hot tea, do you go chai or English breakfast tea or green tea or sun tea or brewed tea or instant tea? I would encourage you, don't go instant tea, or you could go unsweet, or you could go sweet, or those of us in the South know you can go Southern style sweet tea, which even though I grew up in Texas, it's South, but it's not really South, and then you experience sweet tea when you come into the South, and sweet tea, for those of you who don't know, and I think you all know, is one part tea and four pounds of sugar. There is so much sugar in southern style sweet tea that you can have your tea and eat it too. Or if you're more like me, then coffee is more your cup of tea. 
so to speak. I'm sorry, but not sorry for that one. But if you go coffee, what kind? Do you go a, a mild roast or a medium roast or a dark roast? Do you go full calf, decaf, half calf? I'm going to come back to the milk thing and I'm going to add some milk, maybe some half and half or some sort of oily creamer, which tastes really delicious, but I don't want to know what's going on in there. And that's not to consider all the flavors you can go with in your coffee. When I was in college, I will confess that my drink of choice, my beverage of choice was soda, and I drank an ungodly amount of soda in college. Nothing healthy about the amount of soda I drank in college, and Dr. Pepper was my soda of choice in college, and that was the first place in the cafeteria all day, every day, as many refills as you wanted. I remember the first restaurant I went to. It was a Chili's when I was about eight or nine, and that was the first restaurant I remembered being there, and they had free refills. There was a time before re free refills, and once I discovered free refills, it was all over. Nothing but Dr. Pepper, but after I played basketball with my roommates and some others, and I tried to play as much as I could in college, we would go to a nearby convenience store, and then I wouldn't get Dr. Pepper. I would get Coke, but I wouldn't just get Coke because I went past the 10-ounce and the 12-ounce and the 16-ounce and the 16.9-ounce, the 20-ounce. I went past the bottles because they had fountain drinks there, and it was every drink, every size, the same Cost. And why would you go with the small if you could go with the 64-ounce bladder buster, bathtub size soda? And next to the soda fountain, they had self-serve pumps of vanilla or cherry, uh, you know, syrup. So you fill that 64-ouncer up to about 62, and then you just add some more pumps of sugar in vanilla flavor in there. And then what do you do at the self-serve? You take a drink, and then you take another drink, and then you put it back in there so that your 64 ounces become 65 or 66, uh, 66 because I was going to get my money's worth. And you may have noticed that in all the beverage choices, there's a, there's a whole category I didn't even cover yet. It's a category of beverages that you can't legally buy in some counties in Arkansas, but there are others where you can, and they not only have their own aisle in the grocery store, they've got their own stores just to this category. And interestingly, you probably remember the first miracle of Jesus in the Gospels is Jesus taking water and turning it into one of those drinks in that category, turning it into wine, and apparently it was so good that it baffled everyone at the wedding. Did you save the last? Did they save the last? Who saves the best for last? Who saves the best wine for last? Because apparently when Jesus is going to turn water into wine, he's going to turn it into the best wine you've ever had. And when you step back and you think of all the ways we've invented to quench every thirst imaginable, and some thirst we haven't even imagined yet, 
Some combinations of flavor you can find nowhere else in nature. It's easy to conclude that we must be a thirsty species. We've got an unquenchable thirst. Every animal, every creature, every created being needs water to survive. But we're the only ones that I'm aware of that just keeps coming up with new creative beverages to meet every kind of thirst. And it's interesting to me that in the Gospel of John, this only gospel that tells us about the water to wine story, there is this kind of repeated notion that keeps showing up that Jesus comes as the ultimate thirst quencher and hunger buster. So in John 6, at the beginning of chapter 6, we get the story of Jesus feeding this massive group of people with only a small amount of food. And then Jesus and his disciples leave, and many of those folks and some others are like, where'd he go? Let's find him. And so they follow him, and they find him the next day. And Jesus says, you people remind me a lot of college students. You're just going wherever you get a free meal. And I think you're following me because I I gave you food to eat, but let me encourage you to pursue food that doesn't perish, it doesn't spoil. To which the people say, well, could you give us some kind of sign that we can believe what you're saying? And in Jesus' mind, he had to have thought, you mean a sign like feeding thousands of people with only a little bit of food? But instead, Jesus says, uh, let me find it. Instead, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I'm the manna that comes down from heaven. I am the bread of life never hungry, never thirsty, which is quite an offer for an always hungry and thirsty world. A couple of chapters earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus has an encounter with a woman, and not just any woman, but a Samaritan woman at a well in the middle of the day. And it sounds something like this in verse 6. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. And when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. To the hungry, Jesus says, I can fill you. More than a life devoted solely to work. I can fill you more than life that is always chasing the next relationship. I can fill you in a way that lasts far longer than the satisfaction from the next big purchase or the next big achievement. I can fill you to where you are never hungry again. And to the thirsty, Jesus says, I can quench your longing for love and belonging and give you love that lasts forever. I can quench your quest for meaning. I can quench your need to know that there is more than the daily grind, more than the disappointments, more than this life that can be filled with so many frustrations, that can be fleeting and fragile. I can make it. Jesus says, where you never thirst again, where the overflow of God's goodness and provision is like a spring of water welling up to eternal life, which is quite an offer in our world where we are always hungry and always thirsty. And that's why, after hearing this idea repeated over and over in the Gospel of John, that Jesus is the permanent hunger buster, the everlasting thirst quencher, that something catches in my mind when I hear this statement from Jesus on the cross a little later in John. Later, knowing that everything had been finished and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, the, the cheap stuff, the kind that commoners drank. And so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Now, I find that interesting. I don't know if you find that interesting, but it's my sermon, so you've got to listen as I talk about the reason that I find that interesting, that the same one that says, come to me and drink of what I offer, you'll never be thirsty again on the cross says, hey, I am thirsty. I find that really interesting. Now, is it just an odd coincidence? And some might say possibly. 
Because one, he seems to be talking about some spiritual things, and that one is just a, a purely physical thing, which is true. But I, I can't help but think there's a little more connection than we might see at first. And to understand that, it's, it's helpful to think a little bit more about what's happening on the cross. Because the cross to most who were observing it at, at that time would have seemed like an image of Jesus' ultimate powerlessness. But John keeps going out of his way throughout this part of the story to point out that this is actually a picture of ultimate power under control. And we get a little bit of that earlier in chapter 19 when Jesus warns Pilate who thinks he's calling all the shots and Jesus says, you know what, you don't have any power but that which is given to you. It may look like you're the enthroned one. It may look like you're the one driving this bus. But the only power you have is power that's given to you even at this time when I, to be, I appear to be powerless. I'm in control. And then John underlines this idea, almost puts a highlighter on it to show that what's happening even down to this drink is according to the plan. Later, knowing that everything had been finished, he's crossing every T and dotting every I, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus says, I am thirsty. You're like, what Scripture? Well, there's this odd psalm in 69 verse 21 that that talks about the psalmist being given vinegar wine vinegar to drink which is a weird detail for us but it's just one of countless little signs that, that add up to the big message that in big ways and small details God, through Jesus, is working toward God's ultimate goal. The end that God had in mind, even on the cross, Jesus is working to ensure that everything that needs to be said is said, and everything that needs to be done is done, and everything that was promised, everything uh, that has been laid out is completed. Why is that important? Well, at least to me, it's good to know that the one who claims to permanently solve our hunger and quench our thirst has the power to back up that claim. But there's something else about this statement, I am thirsty, that I find not just remarkable, but remarkably comforting. Because I see in it not just a reflection of power, but one more reminder of personhood, divinity and humanity wrapped up in one. He's fulfilling Scripture, yes, 
But he's not just acting thirsty. He's fully God and fully human, which is the mystery. This wasn't a show. As John says, this was the plan. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. But the Word became flesh and set up His tent, made His dwelling, tabernacled among us. The Word, the One who through it all, all was made, becomes part of the made. Creator becomes created. And this is important for John's audience because interestingly, at that time, there were some people that would struggle with the idea of the divinity of Jesus. He's just a guy. He's just a man. But there were others who came to faith in the early part of the church. And they came to faith and they could fully buy in to the divinity of Jesus. It was just the humanity that they really struggled with. There's no way God could become a human. There's no way a God would be born, much less a God that would die. And so they had this notion of a God who's just going through the motions. He's masquerading as a man, but he's not the real deal. And yet, over and over in the Gospels, we are reminded in little pictures and big pictures that both of these are coming together as one. A real person with real thirst and real suffering, real blood, real pain, real death, real resurrection. In fact, you may have noticed In that John 4 story, when Jesus encounters the woman at the well, what's the picture that's painted? He stops because he's tired and he wants to rest. And then the disciples go off because they're getting food, because they're hungry and they need to eat. And then he asks her for what? He asks her for a drink. These are really basic, foundational ideas of what it means to be a creature, of what it means to be human, to be tired and need to rest, to be hungry and need to eat, to be thirsty and need to drink. Boring, basic, and yet so important that the one who empowers new life, eternal life, also empathizes with our life. Which means He gets us. He understands us. And sometimes the best person to help get us where we need to go is the person who understands where we've been and where we are. I think the best person to give us hope about a God who never leaves us or abandons us, is someone who also knows what it is to cry out in a sense of pain and fear. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the other sayings on the cross, I think the deepest 
Healing comes from the one who understands what it means to hurt and be human, which is what the Hebrew writer reminds us. He became like us in every way to better minister to us, to connect, to know what it is to walk in our shoes, to walk in our skin, to live life as we've experienced it. On the cross, Jesus not only shows us how much He cares, but He shows us compassion in the fullest sense of that word. Our English word compassion comes from two Latin words that come together. And we understand the last part of that word, passion, the feeling and the longing and the hurting. We understand the passion part, but it's that first simple prepositional prefix uh, prefix that adds so much to this. And that little prefix represents one of the most powerful words in English. With. With. You aren't alone. You aren't the only one. I'm with you. I've felt what you feel. I've been where you are. Henry Nouwen writes, compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter into places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, vulnerable with the vulnerable, and powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion in the condition of being human. This is Jesus. To the very end, Jesus on the cross. The One who suffers for us in His death is also the One who suffers with us. He knows the highs and He knows the lows. He knows the victories and He understands like we do the defeats. He knows the ups and He knows the downs. Complete care on the cross. Full compassion on the cross. The God that not only suffers for, but suffers with. With. And surely, Jesus assures us, I am with you always to the very end of the age.